Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are in Doctrine and Covenants, Bryce. Okay, so I'm going to give you a brief overview of the entire Doctrine and Covenants, like what's going on in here. So first, the Doctrine and Covenants begins with all these revelations about how to spread the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 11 and 12, all the teens and some of the stuff in the 20s and the 30s are all about this idea of this marvelous work that's going to proceed. And in this, right at the beginning are these sections on how to hear the voice of the Lord. 3, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 19, all this about how to receive his voice. So how do I hear the voice of God? How do I get revelation? And then once I do, how do I spread it? And how do I avoid deception? Because there's a lot in there about not being fooled by the imitation voices. Yeah, so much. 26, 28, 43 are all about how to avoid those things. And then in the midst of these, in the 20s, and then throughout the Doctrine and Covenants are these revelations on how to run and organize the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And so right out of the gate, we get this hearing the voice of God, how to run the church, and then how to spread it. And then there are some power sections in here on the second coming, 29, 45, 88, the olive leaf, 101, 106, 133. And then you get to this idea of the gathering. The Lord says, we're going to gather. I'm going to move you. I'm going to push you west, 37, 38. Go to Ohio, 57, 58. Tribulation's coming. Go to Missouri, 59, 63. Other, other revelations. Section 133, get out of Babylon. And then throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, there's all these revelations about the Lord telling Joseph to translate the Bible and to compile scriptural and historical documents. In other words, the Lord tells Joseph, I've given you the Bible, but he also shows us how to read the Bible. And then all these revelations about building Zion and gathering Zion. And then once we get there, how do we live? And so all this stuff on consecration, starting with 42 and onward, are all these revelations of how the Lord is to run Zion, like the nuts and bolts of running Zion. Now, in the show notes, you'll see some of this laid out. It's kind of an academic exercise, but I think it's good to see the overview of the Doctrine and Covenants. And then throughout, we see the results of the Joseph Smith translation. So, for example, we see the three degrees of glory as Joseph goes through John 5, or the understanding of the apocalypse of John in 77, or understanding John's prelude in section 93, the wheat and the tares is in 86, or Isaiah in 113, and onward. The Doctrine and Covenants price ends with this crescendo with the temple. All this stuff on the temple, like how to do it, what is baptism for the dead, how to build a temple, where to build a temple, and why. And then the keys, section 109 and 110. And then Joseph gets to view, and this is really cool. If you go to the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, you can see the dates of when this stuff is laid out. So look at 1831. Tons of stuff, 1832. And then scroll down to when they get to Nauvoo. 1841, January, they get to Nauvoo, you get 124, and then you end with 135. Now, the Doctrine and Covenants ends in 138 with Joseph F. Smith, but look at the stuff in Nauvoo. There's not a lot of stuff. 135 is his martyrdom, so by 135, he's dead. So 124, they get to Nauvoo, 135, he's gone. And you would think that Joseph didn't receive any revelations in Nauvoo, and the exact opposite is true. Yeah, so what's going on? It's because it's all temple-related. And it's reserved for those who are going to make and keep higher covenants. So the greatest revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants are not in the Doctrine and Covenants. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's a pattern, right, Mike? We've seen that before. Everywhere in the Christian history, all the early Christian historians write, Jesus gave out all this wisdom, but the good stuff is not written down. It's esoteric. It's for the insiders. So there's all this 40-day ministry legends of Jesus teaching his apostles, and yet if you go to the New Testament, it's almost like Jesus says nothing after the resurrection. We get a couple verses in Acts chapter 1, and that's it. 
So if you think about the temple, the culmination of the temple is you and God embraced one-on-one. So the whole Doctrine and Covenants is leading you to your Heavenly Father, to embrace Him, to hear Him. So we're going to go from the whole church to individuals coming unto God and how to do that. It's a brilliant layout there. It's kind of fascinating too, Bryce, like the threefold ascent in the temple. The first room is the prophet. There's three priests. We have Moses calling everybody out of Egypt. And so what do we have in Doctrine and Covenants? Here's how you get Revelation. Get the Book of Mormon out. Here's what we do. And as you approach the second room, there's the accuser who comes, and he's kind of like a stir up of of darkness. And so what do we have in the Doctrine and Covenants? The Lord's like, here's how you avoid dissension. Listen to the prophet. Don't listen to these guys making stuff up. And there's all these revelations on that. Then you get to the second room, and the Lord says, here's how you live Zion. Here's how you organize the church. Here's how you do consecration. And then the the third priest who invites you into God's presence is Melchizedek or Jesus, representing, you know, bringing you into the Father. What are we getting? The, the culmination, the crowning events of the Doctrine and Covenants. We have the temple, but then all the ideas of families, like Joseph's teaching in Nauvoo that we have a heavenly mother and that there's, there, there's eternal families, but you don't read this outwardly in the Doctrine and Covenants because we're back to this idea of esoteric teaching, bringing them into God's presence. And so the Doctrine and Covenants is laid out in this way of ascending into God's presence. And so I, if you're teaching teenagers, I really like the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants because teenagers are like, how do I hear the voice of the Lord? Our audience is probably, Bryce, I'm guessing, a little bit more seasoned, and they're like, tell me what the Doctrine and Covenants means, and how do I read it, Bryce? So connect with Heavenly Father. Now, one of the things that you need to make sure you don't lose in the study of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of background information, there's a lot of do this and how to build Zion, and it's very outward-oriented, but the one thing that you need to make sure you don't forget is to find the Savior in this book. I'd like to begin in section 18. The Savior says something very significant to me in section 18, verses 34 through 36. He says, These words are not of men, nor of man, but of me. Wherefore you shall testify that they are of me, and not of man. For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you. For they are given by my spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another. And save it were by my power, you could not have them. Wherefore, you can testify that you have heard my voice and know my words. The Doctrine and Covenants is a unique opportunity to hear the actual words of the Savior spoken in English, not going through a translator, not going through thousands of years of history, It's Jesus and his own words, and so we can't forget to find him. We have to hear his voice and know his words. The Doctrine and Covenants is a beautiful opportunity to get to know the Savior, but that often gets brushed under the history and the context and what's going on outwardly. So don't forget to find him. Now, studying the Doctrine and Covenants is a little bit different Because in the Book of Mormon, he would tell us a story that we would pull a principle out of and then apply the principle in your life. So the story taught a principle. In the Doctrine and Covenants, he's telling us what to do, actions, appropriate actions. So we have to go in reverse. We have to go from, okay, if this is the right thing for me to do, then what's the principle that led to that right action. In other words, we got to know the story, and yet a lot of times the story is not in there, is it? Yeah, and the story sometimes isn't really important. It's important to know that that story led to him telling them this is the right thing to do in that circumstance. So we have to be able to understand when does the Doctrine and Covenants apply to me. So let's actually begin in section 15. If you'll turn to section 15, there's only six verses. It's really short. It was given to John Whitmer... Now, look through the six verses of section 15 until you kind of get a feel for what they say. Now flip to section 16, and notice they're identical. That fourth fourth word 
in verse 1. I see a change. We have Peter to John, or the John The only Peter. difference is to whom it was given. So God speaks to John Whitmer and gives six verses. John speaks to Peter Whitmer and gives the exact same verses. This is the only repeated section in the Doctrine and Covenants. And you might think, well, it's the content that makes it so important worth repeating. It's really not. These are good verses, but they're certainly not the most important message in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yes, the thing that would be of most worth to us is to preach the gospel. But why the repetition? Why repeat this section of all sections? And the reality is this is the key to unlocking the Doctrine and Covenants. Here's how you need to read this. John Whitmer went to the Lord. John Whitmer is in, in a particular circumstance. His age, his marital status, his willingness to serve. John is in a certain circumstance, and he goes to the Lord, and he receives six verses. Peter Whitmer is in the exact same circumstance and receives the exact same instructions. And it's not that Lord can't think of something new to say to Peter. It's that the Lord speaks to our circumstance, and anyone in that circumstance would get the exact same instruction from the Lord. So if I, Bryce Dunford, happened to be in the exact same circumstance of Peter Whitmer and John Whitmer, and I went to see President Nelson, and he went into the Holy of Holies and received a revelation from me, I guarantee it would be the exact same six verses that he already gave John and Peter Whitmer, because God is speaking to the circumstance. And anyone in that circumstance can apply those instructions to their circumstance. Notice back in section 14, there was another Whitmer brother. So we've got John Whitmer and Peter Whitmer. Well, the most famous Whitmer is David Whitmer. But he doesn't get six verses. He doesn't get the same revelation. So why? Does the Lord love David Whitmer more than Peter and John? No, of course not. But David Whitmer is in a different circumstance. Therefore, his instructions change. The Lord is speaking to people in the circumstance. So the key to unlocking the doctrine covenants is to find a situation, find the circumstance that applies to you. What circumstance are you in? And anyone in that same circumstance can accept what the Lord said to that person as if you were receiving a revelation for you. Let me just give you a couple brief examples, because this whole year we're going to fill this podcast with examples of what's the circumstance that they're in and how does it apply to me. But let me give you an obvious one. Turn to section 31 of the Doctrine and Covenants and ask yourself, okay, what's the situation here? Thomas B. Marsh is in a particular circumstance. Verse 3, the hour of your mission is come. Anyone in that same circumstance can apply the promise the Lord gave to Thomas B. Marsh to themselves. And if you want to even hone it down a little bit, not only is he about to go on a mission, but look at verse 2. He's concerned about his family. So if you're a missionary, and if you're a missionary that's concerned about leaving your family for whatever reason, then you are in Thomas B. Marsh's same circumstance. Therefore, what the Lord said to Thomas B. Marsh is exactly what he says to you. Look at verse 5. If you thrust in your sickle, you get the same three promises that Thomas B. Marsh was promised. If you thrust in your sickle, number one, your sins are forgiven you. That is not a promise limited to Thomas B. Marsh. That is a promise for anyone who can say the hour of their mission has come. If you thrust in your sickle, your sins are forgiven you. Number two, you will be laden with many sheaves. And then number three, end of verse five, your family shall live. Now, that's a beautiful promise to anyone about to go or coming home from a mission. But that's an example of how to read the Doctrine and Covenants. When you find yourself in the same circumstance as someone else, you can accept what the Lord said to them as what the Lord says to you. One more example. 
Do you remember when Joseph, we're going to study Joseph losing the 116 pages. Joseph has a sacred possession that someone else wants. And Joseph has a really good reason for giving the 116 pages to Martin Harris. He sees that it's in his interest to keep Martin happy. And so he does it, and he loses the 116 pages, and then the Lord teaches the principle. The Lord says, you should have been faithful. If Martin had taken his money and gone away, I would have provided someone else. So how about a young man who has a scholarship opportunity to play football and then wants to go on a mission? He's in the exact same circumstance of Joseph Smith who has a sacred possession that someone else wants, and he has a good reason to to make them happy. But the instructions to Joseph Smith now apply to that young man. You please your heavenly father. You do what's right. And if other people get angry and pull your scholarship and take your scholarship away from you, I will provide another opportunity. So when you study the Doctrine and Covenants, and that's why Mike and I are going to really point out the background, what's going on, what's the circumstance in section one that led to this so that you can say, well, that applies to me. And then you can read what's written in the Doctrine and Covenants as if it were instruction for you personally. So let's start with section one. Section one is not the first section given. You might think it came before section two. If you want to go to the chronological order that Mike mentioned, you'll notice that section one didn't come first or second or fifth or tenth or fiftieth. If it were put in its chronological order, it would be around 66. So why is it section one? The circumstances of section one are very significant and why it's the first thing in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's actually called the preface. So, Mike, let's talk about what are the circumstances. What, notice the date. We're a year and a half into the organization of the church. So section one is November of 1831, and section two is way back when Moroni comes in September of 1823, three years after the first vision and seven years before the restoration of the church itself. So that's a huge gap. November 31 for section one and September 1823 for section two. So there's got to be a unique situation. There's got to be something unusual going on. And so now this is a great example. What's the situation? What's the circumstance of section one? And then we'll dive in and say, what's the message? So, Mike, what's the circumstances of section one? Before I even get into that, I just got to say this, Bryce. Section two is given to a 17-year-old. This is mind-boggling because it's short, but it's so packed. Doctrinally, it is so significant. It's awesome. And it's a 17-year-old. Like It just blows me away when people say that Joseph's just making this stuff up. So, yeah, section one, the background to it. 1831, Joseph's almost 26. So... By this time, he and Emma have had three children. They've all passed away. He's translated the Book of Mormon, and he's seen it published. He's seen the organization of the church. He's seen the glory of God. He's witnessed the power of God in Satan, and as well as he's cast a demon out of Newell Knight. Now, there's a guy by the name of Ezra Booth that's causing a lot of problems that's going to be the reason why we get section one. And I find it ironic that Joseph's also cast the devil out of Ezra Booth, which to me is fascinating if you study Ezra Booth's life. So they're in Ohio. It's 1831. And why are they in Ohio? And we'll get into this in the history, but Parley P. Pratt is this man who's the spirit comes over him and he leaves Ohio and he comes to New York and he's led to Joseph Smith. And you remember that video? with Parley P. Pratt, and he's impressed, and he leaves, and he goes to New York. How Rare a Possession. Such a good video. If you've seen the movie How Rare a Possession, there's like a 30-minute, 20-minute vignette about Parley P. Pratt, and that really tells the story. And Parley P. Pratt meets Joseph, and he reads the Book of Mormon, he's converted, and he's like, you know, I want to go preach. And so the Lord calls him to go to Ohio, and he goes, and he meets this guy, this young man by the name of Sidney Rigdon. He's 38 years old. And he Sidney Rigdon hears the gospel, and he and his congregation are converted, and there's this 
early in the in the history of the church, there's this nucleus of saints in Ohio led by Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt, and the Lord tells them, hey, you guys, go to Ohio. And so in the winter of 1830, 1831, they mostly walk to get there. I mean, there's some travel by boat by canal, but can you imagine traveling in the winter? And several of them have to give up long land long standing family farms they you know they've held they've held this land in new york for many 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 years generations and they're walking away from a family tradition some of them are and they go to ohio but the lord said to them go to ohio and i'll give you my law i will give you my law in ohio and so obedient they follow and they head out to the ohio valley april of that year so it's not Section one is given in November, but in April that year, Emma gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl, and they die. And the Murdochs, Julia, gives birth to twins, and she dies. So Emma and Joseph adopt the Murdoch twins. Emma's lost her twins. The summer of 1831, Joseph goes to Missouri. And the reason why is because the Lord says, we're going to build the center stake in Missouri, and we'll read all about that. But that's the context of what's happening. And so in November of 1831, one of the guys who went down to Missouri in the summer is this guy by the name of Ezra Booth. And he goes down there, and he has this grand vision of Zion's going to be this beautiful thing. It's almost like if you've seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, you know, he kind of thinks it's going to be this beautiful thing, and there's going to be crystal cities. And he gets down there, and he's like, this is just raw land, Joseph. How is this the center stake? And then the Lord calls Ezra on a mission. And Ezra doesn't really fulfill it, and he becomes bitter and disaffected. And so in November of 1831, Ezra Booth is writing stuff and saying things like, hey, Joseph is holding out on us. He's getting revelation from God, and he's not sharing it with the saints. And because he's saying all these things and spreading all this stuff in the newspapers, and it's being widely read, Joseph's concerned, and he's like, what am I supposed to do with this? And so section one is this response to this negative attack. And so he gets a council of the elders together, and he proposes to them, hey, we need to publish these revelations in a book, because by now there's over 60 of them, but they're not published. And the council talks about it, and David Whitmer says, you know, we can't do that. If we publish this, then our enemies are going to use our words against us. And Joseph and Sidney say, we, we got to move forward. We've got to do this. And so they get together and they assign a couple guys to write the preface. Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, and William McClellan, all highly educated and respectable guys. And they write a preface and the council looks over it and they're like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And so Joseph's like, well, what should we do? And they pray about it and the Lord speaks. And we get section one. That's that. That's kind of how this comes about. Now, after he, they do this, um, William McClellan, one of them, he's one of them that we know that says this. They say, Joseph, this is really limited in vocabulary. You kind of have not the best grammar, and so they kind of come at him. And we're going to see some of this in the Doctrine and Covenants section one, where the Lord's like, "Guess what? Joseph's my guy." So Joseph throws down a challenge to William McClellan because he's like the smartest guy in the room. And he says, well, William, why don't you write the preface then? And so William does. And then he comes back and he's like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Now, let me read that. We're in, this is section 67. And the Lord is kind of, verse 5, your eyes have been on my servant Joseph Smith. His language you have known, his imperfections you have known, and you have sought in your hearts that you might express beyond his language, this you also know. So here's the challenge, ready? Seek ye out of the book of commandments, even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. Now, if there's anyone among you that can make anything like one of the ones that Joseph has already produced, or if there be among you one that can make like unto it, then you are justified in saying that you do not know that they are true. So go ahead and try. Try and write a revelation. Try and speak for God and write a revelation and see if you can produce anything better than what Joseph has produced. Verse 8, but if you cannot make one like unto it, you are under condemnation if you do not bear record that they are true. That was the challenge Mike's talking about, section 67. This is the conference in which they're having the question, should we publish these revelations? And William McClellan tries, 
and bitterly fails. And that's when they realize that these are not coming from Joseph, they're coming from the Lord. And that's the setting here of section one. And you read this and you're like, okay, so what does this tell us? And the first thing I want to say, and it kind of sounds counterintuitive because we want this nice Jesus. We want this nice religion where everything is just warm and fuzzy. But I can't emphasize this enough. In my opinion, all scripture is a polemic or an attack. And I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean, and, and if you don't like that word, you can call it a defense. But it really is a drawing of lines or distinctions. That word polemic comes from the Greek polemos or polemikos, which is warlike, or polemos, which is war. It's a war. Religion is a war. And so if you think about this, and this is where we get into the, the history of the Christian documents or the, even the Old Testament, they were written in a time of conflict and dissent, and the Gospels were written to tell people, because there were many different Christianities swirling around in the first two centuries, and the Gospels were written to counteract the false claims made about Jesus. So there were people walking around saying, Jesus is all divine, he never was human. And so there's there's references like in Mark, where Jesus is like, well, he actually had to sweat, and he had human characteristics. Then there were other Christians walking around saying, Jesus was only mortal, he wasn't divine, so we read the Gospel of John. They're almost like two different Jesuses, but they're emphasizing those aspects of who he was. And then if you read the writings of Paul and you do a careful reading, Paul is basically saying, there's all this messed up stuff that you guys are saying about Jesus. Let me correct you guys. And so he's constantly like correcting. And if you listen to the apostles today, there's a lot of times when they're like, you know, we've heard this from Elder Oaks a few times. He's like, you people saying this and this, you don't really know the plan of salvation. Let me break it down. The apostles' job is to be like, here's the truth. And so the Doctrine and Covenants is also coming out of this tradition of it's a war. In fact, even if you read the Joseph Smith history, when we get into this, Joseph's like, Due to all this stuff people are saying about me, I'm going to give you the straight truth. Why? I've got to counteract this stuff. So we're in a war. Now, here's the problem as Latter-day Saints. How do we fight this war and not turn into bitter fighters? How do we do it? I see this on social media where there's people defending the church, and sometimes they'll say things, and I'm like, ooh, that's too much salt. So how do we do it? So just a couple quotes. And like I said, I'm no expert, and please don't look at me as a perfect person on this, but... A couple thoughts. One of them is from Elder uh, Jeffrey R. Holland, and he said this, we must be strong, defend our beliefs with courtesy and with compassion. So he wants us to defend them. And then this is a big quote by Elder Marvin J. Ashen, and I'm just going to read a portion of it, but it's in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. But he says, when others disagree with us, we shouldn't argue or retaliate in kind or contend with them. Well, then how are we supposed to defend ourselves? He says, ours is to conscientiously avoid being abrasive in our presentations and declarations. We need constantly to remind ourselves that when we are unable to change the conduct of others, we will go about the task of properly governing ourselves. So somehow, some way, we can disagree, but we shouldn't be disagreeable. And that may sound very challenging. Bryce, what do, you, what do you say to people when they say, I want to defend it, but how do I do it without becoming offensive? Again, I remind you, we're going to jump into Joseph Smith history in the next couple of weeks, but Joseph uses three P words that fascinate me. The ministers of the different religions were doing two things to attract people to the religion. They were promoting and proving and that's what we often do. If you want to sell someone, you promote it. And we find the ministers of religion trying to promote religious feeling or trying to prove that they're right. Joseph says, and he uses a completely different P word. He just simply says at the beginning, I am going to present. I'm just going to present truth because it's the Holy Ghost that defends it. It's the Holy Ghost that promotes it and proves it. We just need to present it. And so that's the tone and tenor of the Doctrine and Covenants is, here's the truth. And we don't necessarily need to run out and promote it with archangels shouting out behind us. We don't need to prove it. 
We just need to present the truth and allow the Holy Ghost to testify to honest truth seekers. So that's kind of the setting here of section one. They're having a question, should we publish these revelations? Well, let's not use Joseph's language because Joseph isn't very smart. Well, what should we do? Well, these were personal in nature. What? Why should personal revelations have anything to do with the church? And boy, the Lord answers that question with section one and says, I do want them published because they contain my message to the world. So if you'll jump to section one, notice in verse six, that's where the Lord calls this section his preface. This is my preface unto the book of my commandments. This is why it's section one. They actually received two sections that day, section one and section 133, which 133 was initially in the appendix. So the Doctrine and Covenants bookends with revelations given at this particular conference. And here the Lord says, all right, this is what I want to say at the very beginning of my revelations, at the very beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants. Verse 4, notice the very first word is hearken. Hearken, hearken, listen. Here's the whole reason there is a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The whole reason there's a Doctrine and Covenants. We have a voice of warning. Verse 4, the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the voice of my disciples. God has a voice of warning. So what's the warning? Well, long story short, the Lord is announcing that the earth is going to change. During the millennium, for the purposes of the Lord, this earth will be a terrestrial planet. It's going to change into a terrestrial planet. Now, who can dwell on a terrestrial planet? Telestial people cannot dwell on a terrestrial planet. And because the earth is changing, everything that is telestial has to either change or be destroyed. That's the simple reality of the Latter-day Saints and our message to the world. Everything that is telestial has to either change or be destroyed. Now, which of those two would the Lord prefer? Would the Lord prefer that we change or that we be destroyed? The whole point of the restoration is to help people change so they're not destroyed. But the voice of warning is simply, the earth is going to change, and you need to change as well, or else you will be destroyed. So, we jump to verse 12. What is the voice of warning? Verse 12, prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. And the anger of the Lord is kindled, and the sword is bathed in heaven, and shall fall upon the inhabitants of the earth. And the day cometh that they who will not hear the voice of the Lord... Neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets and apostles, shall be cut off from among the people. There's the warning. The earth is going to change, and if you don't change, you have to be cut off. And prophets have been sent to tell you and plead with you to change. Now, why are you going to be cut off? Verses 15 and 16. The world has strayed from mine ordinances as a planet. We have broken the covenant. We have strayed from his ordinances and we have broken his covenant. As a planet, not speaking to us individually, as a planet, we seek not the Lord to establish his right. Notice the pronouns here. We don't seek the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way. Notice the contrast in the word his. Every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God, rather than his, meaning the Lord's way. We're not living the Lord's way. Therefore, we can't dwell in the terrestrial world of the millennium with him. If you want to dwell with him, we have to live his way. And if the world insists on living their own way, they have to be cut off. And that's what's broken, is we have broken the everlasting covenant, and we have to either change. As a planet, we have to change, or we have to be cut off. Now, the Lord's going to help us. 
But that's the gist of what's broken, Mike, is our covenant has been broken. So what helps do we get? Well, notice verse 17. Knowing that I, the Lord, knowing the calamities which are coming, knowing the destruction, knowing the cleansing, knowing what's going to happen on earth if we don't change, knowing the calamities which shall come upon the inhabitants of the earth, what has the Lord done to prevent our destruction? I called upon my servant Joseph Smith. I spake unto him from heaven, and I gave him commandments. In other words, I don't want the world to be cut off. I don't want the world to be destroyed, so I called upon a prophet. I give you a prophet. I give you commandments. And then he extends it to us, the weak things of the world, right? Look in verse 19. Verse 19. And also verse 20, that every man might speak in the name of God the Lord. So in other words, yeah, I've called Joseph, but guess what I want you to do? Be like Joseph. Be and a revelator. Be one who gets revelations and can speak in my name and bring people to my covenant, right? Implied in that is that you can have authority to do God's work. Yeah. I mean, look at look at verse 24. I've given it to my servant in his weakness, in their weakness, after the manner of their language. That 24 is packed, where the Lord essentially says, I've called my servants in their weakness, but I'm going to speak to them after the manner of their language. And so there's a lot more that could be said, I think it was what the Lord's saying in verse 24, but he's like, I have to package this in language you can understand, which I'm just going to go on a segue here. Why the King James language? Why is that the language of the Doctrine and Covenants? And I think one of the main reasons is because that was the language of Protestant America. If you lived in 1831 and you were a religious thinker, you probably read the King James Bible. Now, if you had any book in your house in 1831, it probably was the King James Version of the Bible. And so one person wrote this. He wrote, we seek with great interest a knowledge and understanding of the ancient saints and their faith and practices, just as they called forth the revelations of heaven and worked miracles and entertained angels and stood in the divine presence. We seek to do the same, standing where they stood and believing what they believed. It follows that we cannot be students of the Doctrine and Covenants without also being students of the Old and New Testaments. And so because the Old and New Testaments, the King James English was the language that these people understood, the Lord is going to speak to them after that manner of language. Now, Bryce and I have talked about this a lot. We really love all the other different translations. Man, I love getting into the words and those kinds of things. But the cool thing about the Doctrine and Covenants is you don't need to do Greek or Hebrew, but you know what I think a, a big part of reading the Doctrine and Covenants, Bryce, is you got to be a student of the Scriptures. And especially, I'm going to throw this at you, I think Isaiah is a big deal here. Well, kind of as a comparison, do you remember in high school studying Shakespeare? And we so much struggled, all of us struggled with Shakespeare because we weren't familiar with the way they spoke back then. But if you paid a little bit of a price, if you learned, those of you who learned to speak the way Shakespeare spoke can pull great meanings out of his plays. Why are his plays still studied, even though the language is so difficult? It's because the message is powerful. But we're so unfamiliar with the language that until you overcome that barrier, you're never going to get to the message. And the Lord has that same problem. It's like, okay, let's let's become more and more familiar with the language of the Scriptures. The more you become familiar with the language of the Scriptures, including the language of Isaiah, the more you can pull meaning out of the Scriptures. And so I love that verse that the Lord says, I'm going to speak unto you until, according to the way you understand, but... The more you understand how I've spoken unto others, the more you'll get out of what I'm speaking unto you. Yeah. So do you just see what he's doing here? The Lord's saying, the earth is going to change. Those who don't change are going to be swept off. I don't want you to be swept off. I've given you a prophet. I've given you the language of the prophet. I've given you the words that the prophet's going to speak to you. I'm giving you the Holy Ghost so that you can speak yourselves. And then there's one more gift that I love that he mentions here. In verse 30, he references to something coming out of the wilderness. 
Well, go back to Revelation chapter 12, where we saw his church, the woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, wearing the crown of stars on her head. That woman was the church. And she was pregnant, trying to bring forth Zion, trying to bring forth that perfect Zion society. But then we saw a dragon appeared and chased the woman into the wilderness that she could be nourished there for a while. So the church has been in the wilderness during the apostasy. And now, section one, the Lord says, look, the other thing I'm going to do, I called upon my prophet Joseph and authorized him. And now what he's going to do, verse 30, is he's going to bring forth out of obscurity and out of darkness the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth with which I, the Lord, am pleased. I'm going to restore the church of Jesus, the original, full, true church of Jesus Christ. I will restore that on the earth so that my children can be preserved prior to the destruction coming. Do you see how all this relates to the Latter-day Saints and our purposes here? We have the authority God gave to Joseph Smith. We have keys, we have priesthood, we have commandments, we have scripture, and now we have or the promise of the organization of the church. You have the church restored, the only true and living church upon the earth that has all the keys and all the authorities and is led by a prophet. Now, with those two things in your hand, Will you please help me save as many of my children as I possibly can? That's the invitation of section one, is save as many of his children as we possibly can. We have the authority. We have the truth. We have the scriptures. And we have to succeed. We have to go out and we have to save the world. Verse 35, I am no respecter of persons and will that all men shall know that the day speedily cometh, and the hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand, when peace shall be taken from the earth, and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. And also the Lord shall have power over his saints, and shall reign in their midst, and shall come down in judgment upon Idumea. Mike, what's Idumea? Let's, let's throw that out there so we can see kind of the setting here, is please help me save my children. The devil is going to take peace from the earth. I'm going to be with my saints. Destruction is coming. Judgment is coming down upon Idumea. There's a a lot of wordplay happening with Idumea. And we put a map in the show notes so you can see it. So I'm going to talk about it as if you're looking at the map. So southeast of Jerusalem and a little bit south and a little bit east of the Dead Sea is this place called Edom. Now, Edom is a pun on Adam. It's the same word. There's no vowel pointing in the Old Testament. It's not till after Jesus that they put the vowel pointing in. So if you look at the vowel pointing under the Hebrew characters, Edom and Adam have these vowel points that make you say them different, but it's the same word. It's Aleph, Daleth, Mem, Adam, or Edom. And the Edomites or Edom, or Idumea, that's what they called the Edomites. They were the enemies of the Israelites, and they had wars, and they had fights, and they they had different gods, and they were just this distinct group. And to get to the promised land, there's this old trail called the King's Highway, and we think that the Israelites, well, we know this in the Old Testament, they have to pass through Idumea or pass through Edom to get to the promised land. They kind of go north through their country, and then they cross over the Jordan River north of Idumea. And why is it a pun on Adam? So Adam comes out of the earth. The word for earth is Adamah. So we have Adam coming out of the earth, and Adam can also be red. It's a pun, but it can mean red. Do you remember Esau? And he comes out all red and hairy. That word is Edom. And the the descendants of Esau are the Edomites. So it's like the etymology of all these things. The beginnings of the Edomites come from Esau. And so one of the ideas is I've got to pass through Adam 
to get to the promised land or Edom to get to the promised land. What is this? Well, one meaning of it is mortality. I've got to pass through the fallen world that Adam brought and gave us. There's no escape. I have to pass through this. That's why Isaiah is so important to really cracking section one. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to geek out. So Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 34, in my opinion, if you have time and and you're like, I got nothing else to do because it's COVID, then crack open Isaiah 24 and 34 because it is awesome. And it is the backdrop to section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. Because Edomia is one of these word plays where the Lord's trying to teach us and he's trying to say, there's no other way to get to the promised land except through Edomia, except through Edom. We got to cross through mortality to get to the promised land. Well, what else did they cross through? They cross through the water. Before they get to Edomia, they have to cross through the Red Sea. The backdrop really is Isaiah and also the Psalms, it's all over the place. Look at verse 13 of section one of the Doctrine and Covenants where it says, his sword is bathed in heaven. Now that's a code word, and that is basically Isaiah 34 packaged in one verse. That's the 13th verse. Then look at verse 15. For they've strayed from mine ordinances and broken the everlasting covenant. That is Isaiah 24 packaged. So the Lord, I, here's the thing. If you have one book and you live in 1831 and you read this stuff and you're a religious thinker, you already know where Joseph's going with this. We don't really think this way today because we have things like Netflix and we're, you know, we have distractions, right? But if imagine you have one book, like I guarantee Sidney knew this. Sidney Rigdon was a genius with the Bible. And I could just see his eyes light up when he reads verse 13 and verse 15. And so what I did was in the show notes, I just went through the 24th chapter of Isaiah and I just highlighted this stuff for you. So to save you time, if you want to just read the highlights, you can. But this, in essence, is the cosmic covenant. And the cosmic covenant is essentially this. God says, I'm going to hold back the seas, the chaos, and I'm going to create a safe space for you guys, but I need your help. It's everything Bryce is saying, where the Lord's like, stuff is going to come and I need your help. I'm going to say it in like a nerdy way. The cosmic covenant is once again, God pushing back the chaos And the reason why the chaos is withheld is because the people are righteous and there's a king on the throne. And the king on the throne is a big deal in the Old Testament. But when the temple's destroyed in 600 BC, they don't have kings anymore after this. And so the entire religion is edited and rewritten. And we get this reformed Josiah, a Jewish apostasy stuff in the Old Testament. And so there's kind of like these two religions fighting. There's the old time religion of the first temple, and then there's the reformer stuff where we don't have a king in the second temple literature. But then we have all this stuff outside of the Bible that's received by prophets that the Jews are like, what do we do with this stuff? And they're like, I don't know, don't put it in the Bible. And then the Christians get it and they struggle with it. Like, what do we do with this? And Some of it makes it into the Bible. One of them is the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation's message is, when the king gets on the throne and we push back the chaos, we have peace. That's what section one is saying. A big book that does this, this is fun if you really want to nerd out, is read Enoch. And I'm going to reference this in the show notes. There's basically five sections to the book of Enoch, and it doesn't make it in the New Testament, and it doesn't make it in the Old Testament, but it exists. And there are all these Jews and all these Christians that read it, and they're like, this is it, the cosmic covenant. We get a king, it's going to be Jehovah. We have peace, and the universe has order. And so that's the cosmic covenant. One scholar wrote this. She wrote, the covenant or oath that secures the order of creation in the text of First Enoch, that is this covenant. The climax of the visions where Enoch describes the cosmic covenant, and I might say Isaiah does the same thing, essentially is this. It is the revealing of the name of the Son of Man to the people, I might add. This revealing of the name of the Son of Man is what will restore mankind to the knowledge of not only the Son of Man, who will come back to reclaim a desolate and parched world, restoring it to its Edenic state. Think about that. We believe this earth will be restored to its paradisical glory. But this revealing of the name is the revealing of who the saints really are, for they are bound to him by covenant. They believed in a cosmic or eternal covenant, which kept all things in harmony in accordance with the divine plan. To break this covenant was to release the forces 
that could destroy all of creation. Now think about what the Lord's saying in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's like, I know there's this calamity. It's coming. You've got to get let go of Babylon. And verse 15, you guys have messed up. You've strayed and you've broken the covenant. So what is the cosmic covenant? Isaiah 24, I'm going to go quick, but I would encourage you to read it slow. So go to verse 3 of Isaiah 24. Look what the Lord says. The land is going to be utterly emptied or spoiled. Verse 4, the earth mourneth and fadeth away. Verse 5, the earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because here it is. They've transgressed the laws, they've changed the ordinance, and they've broken the everlasting covenant. Verse 6, the curse devoureth the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Now, if you dwell and you're desolate from an Old Testament perspective, that was tied to fertility and seed. In the Old Testament, having kids is a really big deal. And if you have lots of children, you're really, really blessed. In 2020, we live in a world where people are like, I don't want children. We have entire nations shrinking in population. So you're going to hear us say this a lot in the Doctrine and Covenants, that families are a big deal to God. It's huge. The whole Abrahamic covenant, as we're told, is to bless the families of the earth. I mean, and that's section two. I can't wait to get to section two. Like, it's so rich. So go to verse 10 of Isaiah 24. The city of confusion is broken down. Verse 12, the city is left desolation. The gate is smitten with destruction. Verse 13, as the shaking of an olive tree, the forces of nature are just rife with strife and and they're shaking. And this is what will happen at the second coming. The earth, verse 19, is broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Verse 20, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. Verse 21, the Lord will punish the hosts of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And then to get into the cosmic nature a little bit more, look at verse 23. Verse 23 is the very forces of the sun and the moon. The moon will be confounded and the sun will be ashamed. Now, this is also in Isaiah 34, with his sword bathed in heaven. So go and read Isaiah 34. The Lord holding back the forces of chaos is all tied to the Psalms because the Psalms were read in a temple setting. And the temple setting was this idea or story that when the king's on the throne and the people are righteous and the king and the queen covenant with God, they would literally kneel before this priest that represented God and they would make covenants to God. Then they would stand up and turn to face the audience and the same covenant would be read to the audience And the audience would say, we agree. And then there would be peace and the forces of chaos would be pushed back. So just take your pen and highlight these and go through these and read these. But read Psalm 18, 16, and 17, Psalm 24, 1 and 2, the 46th Psalm. All of these Psalms are talking about God pushing back the chaos, pushing back this force of destruction. Psalm 69, 1 says, save me, O God, from the waters that come up to my neck, that's in the New International Version, or soul, nefesh, in our version. The 93rd Psalm, the Lord is mightier than the sea, verse 4. Psalm 104, I've set the bounds, they're not going to be passed over. The bounds of the sea are the chaos. This is the creation motif where God says, I'm pushing back the waters and I'm going to protect and make a place for life. This is Isaiah 51, 9 and 10, and Psalm 89, where the Lord says, I'm going to still the waves crush the sea monster, and scatter the enemies. All of this stuff is just all over in the Doctrine and Covenants, especially in section one. And so to recap, the goal of the God of heaven in the cosmic covenant is this, to establish his covenant, and you read that right there in section one, verse 22, look what he says, that my everlasting covenant might be established. So you got to ask yourself, okay, what is that? And the Lord's going to describe that. In essence, it's what we say in the temple. God wants to seal a man and woman for time and all eternity so that we can have life. The next thing he says in the cosmic covenant is I want to heal the earth. That's Isaiah 24 and 34. Look what it says right there in section two, verse three. This is so cool. If this covenant isn't established, verse three, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. So I like to sometimes read the scriptures in reverse and flip it. So if the covenant is established, verse three, what's the opposite of utterly wasted? 
It's awesome, right? We have life. So the covenant brings life. The next thing is he wants to give his people his name. Now, this is all over the place in the book of Enoch. But if you read John 17, 6, 12, and 26, Jesus, praying to his father, says, I've given my people the name that you promised me that I could give them, and I've kept them through your name. Now, there's a lot I just can't say about that, but and think about what King that means. that's King Benjamin's address as well. I want to give you a name. Yeah. Here's the name. Finally, the cosmic covenant is that there's a king on the throne. Now, that king is Jesus. Look at verse 36 of section 1. That the Lord shall have power over his saints, and there it is. He shall reign in their midst. The image I want you to have is Jesus on a throne, reigning. That's, that's the cosmic covenant. And then finally, to establish his rule on the earth. So the cosmic covenant, which is in all this literature, what's called apocalyptic literature, that's just a fancy way of saying it's revealed. Apocalyptic literature is revealed in time of crisis, and it's revealed to the prophet to give to the saints to talk about those things, God ruling on the throne, healing the earth, pushing back this stuff. And to me, the whole book of the Doctrine and Covenants is apocalyptic literature, meaning that it's revealed to a prophet. That's what apocalyptic means, to uncover. But it also is revealed in a time of crisis. Now think about this. It's 1831. Do you think that the guys sitting in, the, in that room, William McClellan, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith, maybe Joseph, uh, Party P. Pratt, some of these guys, do you think they even have a clue what's coming in their country in the next 30 years? It's a time of crisis. Now ask yourself this, are we, 2020, are we living, is the Doctrine and Covenants any less relevant today? Are we not in a time of crisis? And hence the Lord says in verse 37, search these commandments, for they are true and faithful, and the prophecies and promises which are in them shall be fulfilled. Everything that the Lord has promised is coming. And because the earth has broken his covenants, the earth is going to be cleansed. And so the plea is, join him, join God, and save as many of his children as he possibly can. So follow the prophet, join the true and living church, help him spread the word. Verse 38, what I the Lord have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away. That shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Be one of those servants. Help the Lord save his children from the destruction associated with the second coming that's coming. That's why there is a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Latter-day Saints. We come before. We come before the destruction. We come before the chaos. We come before the last days. We are the saints in the latter days to save as many of his children as we can. They have to come back to the covenant. They have to put Jesus on the throne in their heart and in their life. And if they do that and keep the covenant, there is prosperity and blessings in Zion. And God will be with his people and we will prosper and we will be left standing when all of the chaos falls. That is section one. It comes at the very beginning as an introduction to everything that this restoration is about. We are restoring the ancient covenants. We are restoring the true church. We are going to go out and save as many people, including the dead, not just the living, but we're going to go out and save as many of the dead as we possibly can. So at the very beginning, here's where the Lord's going. Here's where the Lord's taking us. And he throws the challenge down. The gauntlet is at your feet. Will you pick it up and join him in this quest to save his children before the destruction comes? His sword is bathed. He needs servants. He needs the weak things of the earth to rise up and break down the mighty and strong ones to speak with confidence and peace, speak the fullness of the gospel. That's section one, my dear friends. Such a cool intro. It is such a great intro. Now, if you want to have a fun journey, go read section 133, which is the bookend. It's, it was intended to be the sister revelation for section one and how he just kind of talks about a millennial day. 
So section one is to get to the millennial day. And section 133 is more about the millennial day once we've gotten to it. We are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. May we understand the things of our day and that the chaos is coming if we hold to the covenant, we will be preserved. God will be with his people, and we will prosper. So there's the invitation to the study of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a great way to begin 2021. Coming out of the chaos of 2020, let's get to the restoration of 2020. <laughs> what chaos? What are you talking about? <laughs> Just kidding. So with that, we thank you for listening. We are so grateful to be part of this and we'll see you next week when we do Joseph Smith History 1 through 26. Yep, first vision. First vision. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.